Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, to those of you uh, who were not in Sunday school, I um, have not been here in the pulpit for a couple of weeks. My family and I have been enjoying some vacation in Mexico with some dear friends. Uh, we are happy to be back and happy particularly to be here on this Easter Sunday. I say every Easter that uh, we get to celebrate an empty tomb somewhere in the Middle East that guarantees we don't have to live empty lives. And that was true yesterday, and that's true today, and that'll be true next Sunday. And every, su- every Sunday really is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ in a sense. And yet, Easter Sunday on the church calendar is an opportunity to zoom in and to focus on the resurrection of Jesus, the person and work of Christ uh, on our behalf, And given the overwhelming nature of the person and work of Christ, there is an embarrassment of riches when it comes to what do you what do you say? I mean, this sermon does not find itself in the middle of a series where you're just preaching the next text. And so the expository task is indeed weighty. How many things could I fruitfully say about the resurrection of Jesus and the person of Jesus? A million and all of them would be good. And so every, every Easter that I have preached, I've faced the same dilemma, knowing that there are so many fruitful things to say. So on this particular occasion, what I thought I would do, particularly in light of the cultural moment, is ask a common but profound philosophical question, in some sense continuing our Sunday school in that regard, Provide what I believe to be the best answer, but then, of course, most importantly, show how the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of the gospel answer and fulfill the deepest questions that you and I have ever asked. And what I'm suggesting is that by the end of our time today, we will applaud the conclusion of the late American astronomer Robert Jastrow, who says... For the scientist, and we might as well say philosopher, who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. His answers weren't what they thought they were going to be. What might we imagine Jastrow's disappointed mountain climber was seeking after in terms of inquiry? I want to suggest one potential candidate might be the search for meaning, or more exactly, significance. You've no doubt heard questions like, what is the meaning of life? And if meaning is understood as something that communicates something, it's not clear that life has a meaning in that sense, but what people are getting at is, what is the significance of a life, of life in general? What what is the purpose? According to Webster's, significance means the quality of being worthy of attention or important. We might ask in that case, what would have to be true about reality? for something like a life to have significance. What has to be true about the world 
in order for our lives to have significance. And then we can fill in those criterion and get a specific answer. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed this morning. The first thing you might consider for a life to have significance and not be pointless is that it is oriented toward some goal, toward some end. Certainly, uh, Aristotle realized this when he wrote his ethics. Why? Why must life be situated towards some end? There must be an objective end within which our lives are situated. Why? We can imagine world one. Here's what happens in world one. People engage carefully, fervently, and indefinitely in a bunch of random activities that do not amount to anything. They aren't going anywhere. They don't come together to create anything. There is no pinnacle of all the activity. Or perhaps they go in a very large circle that itself has, it, it, it has no end. Perhaps the epitome of mindless activity and existence. A kind of living version of twiddling one's thumbs. Except not even with the intent to pass the time. No goal at all. A telos is the Greek word. An end. Some kind of goal-orientedness seems indispensable for conceiving of a life as significant. But... You can imagine World 2. World 2. In World 2, there is an objective goal to be pursued. There's an objective end. Even if some people aren't pursuing it, there's an objective way things are set up. Things are going towards something. But we discover something about World 2. As it turns out, what everyone is working towards or the goal that exists for everyone, the aim, no one's particularly excited about. Perhaps everyone is living, uh, who is living this goal-oriented life is committed to making widgets that will one day come together and to form a great structure. That's the purpose. You ask somebody, you can't wait to see this thing, right? And they're like, eh. I don't really care about it. I just know that what I'm doing has a purpose. It's to go into this structure. It's not random. It's goal-oriented. Or maybe everyone's working to assemble something that provides fun or entertainment. Maybe they're all working to, to put together widgets that will finally craft a jet ski for them to ride at the end of their life, have a little bit of fun or entertainment. In other words, there could be an objective end, an objective goal, but an end that even if it had some pleasantry associated with it, it isn't fulfilling. It does not quench the desire of anyone's soul. Nobody longs for it, even if they enjoy it. And in World 2, we're supposed to pursue an objectively unfulfilling, dreary goal all our whole lives. I have to say, it's extremely hard to say in that world that those lives have significance. At the very most, they play some instrumental role in a larger picture that isn't worth achieving. To have a chance at significance, it seems to me, 
You don't, you can't just have an end to work to or work toward, but one that is worthwhile or more precisely an end must fulfill us as creatures. There has to be a goal. It cannot be dreary, cannot be simple pleasure. It has to be completing. It has to be something fulfilling. But as it turns out, that, that's actually not enough either. You've got to have a little bit more than that. Imagine world three. Imagine world three. I'll give you an illustration before we talk about world three. It was recently in Mexico, and there on the beach in front of a resort, they had a seaweed problem. So in the morning, they get a little man out there on a tractor with kind of wires, brush, roller thing on it, and, and they would run over the seaweed to clean it up. And then guess what happened? More seaweed washed up. Over and over again. I remember turning to one of my friends saying, man, talk about a, a losing exercise. <laughs> my goal, what do, you, what do you do for your job? I clear the beach of seaweed. Are you ever successful? Not really. They had no chance of clearing the beach, only mitigating the effects. So imagine again World 3. World 3, there is a true chief end for everyone. There is a goal-orientedness. And unlike clearing seaweed, it is a dazzling, fulfilling goal, but everyone will fall short of realizing it. It's not achievable. There's an objective goal, it's a great one, it's fulfilling, but, but no one has a chance of actually getting there in this world, in world three. No one is actually able to achieve the end towards which they are working. Everyone is doomed to failure with regards to pursuing that goal. How could you look at those lives futilely pursuing goals, efforts doomed to failure and say, oh yeah, yeah, those lives, those, are, that's, those lives have significance for sure. It's hard, it's hard to see how you could. It's hard to know how we make sense of that. It seems incoherent. In other words, the end must be achievable. The end of our lives, the story within which our lives are situated and towards which our lives are aimed, it must be achievable. And you might think that's it, but there's actually, I would suggest, one more element to meaningfully talk about what it could mean for something like a life to have significance. Imagine world four. There's an objective end for which we're all created. We're all situated within an objective story. There's a goal towards which everyone's lives are oriented. It's a glorious goal and it's an achievable goal. Seems like everything's coming together here. And when you achieve the goal... You get to enjoy its fruits for one year and then disappear out of existence. Your final end would be the same as people who didn't even care about the aim of life in the first place. Nothingness. Could such lives have final, ultimate significance? Despite what certainly probably feels like effort and orderness, uh, orderly activity, significant moments, little p purposes, 
throughout, it's difficult to see on the whole how a life that ends in nothingness, despite being goal-oriented and achieving it, could count as significant. You end up the same as, as everybody else, nothing. And so what we need is eternal experience. Our experience of the end must be unending. I want you to notice that if you take out any of these, it's difficult to talk about something like a life as having significance. You can try subtracting some of these out. Now let's imagine World 5 where all these four things are in place. World 5 is our world. World 5 is the real world. World 5 is why we need Jesus Christ. And it's why no doctrine or person fills out this criterion for a significant life and embracing it like Jesus. Why? Because, Matthew 28, after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. As he said. Come. See the place where he lay. I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning. Answering the question. How does the resurrected Christ. And the promises of the gospel. Hit home runs on all four of these prerequisites for life having actual significance instead of being like an intricately crafted ant pile that gets kicked over. Because make no mistake about it, this framework is in place whether you believe it or not. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. If you have your copy of the scripture with you. If not, that's okay. We heard it read in two sections. All of what comes before Romans chapter 8 in one sense kind of leads up to it. Kind of climaxes in Romans chapter 8 in a sense. Coming out of Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul is talking about his struggle with sin. Man, we're looking for some hope and encouragement at this point. And boy, do we get it in chapter 8. So I want to consider the criterion that we're looking at here. I want to start out of order, and I think you'll understand why I'm doing it. With just achievability, the hope. Do we have hope of achieving the end? I'm going to punt on the end until the next Let's talk about achievability, whatever the end ends up being. We see that this end has been, and in some sense is, threatened by something called sin. Actions 
dispositions, desires contrary to God's will for how we are to live life before him. Paul describes the nature of this monstrous, goal-threatening foe in verse 5. After already telling us the wages of sin is death in chapter 6, listen to what he says. For those who live, verse 5 of chapter 8, according to the flesh, set their minds on the thing of the flesh. That word flesh there, sarks, is a word that means our sinful nature, not our skin. It means our indwelling sin. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the thing of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't do it. Those who are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot even please God. This is the same sin that he describes in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he tells us in verse 13 that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. So let me just say, if you're focusing on this part, you might think, man, this significance project is not even going to get off the ground. This is not achievable. This is not achievable because all have fallen short. Some bad news. We need some good news. We need some gospel. And that's exactly what we get. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore, despite sin, despite disobedience, despite just condemnation, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, the sinful nature in us, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The, the, the wages of sin is death. It requires condemnation. Nothing about that in one sense has changed. What changed is that God the Son became flesh. That's what it says. He, he took on. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, although without sin. He became genuinely a man. He lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And then in his flesh, he was condemned. He was crucified. He took the wrath of God for sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. So that the justice demanded by the law could be fulfilled and we could be justly delivered from the penalty of death at the same time. The gospel is simultaneously how God is just and merciful. You have to answer, how can God be both just 
judge, and merciful. And the answer is the cross and the gospel. God the Son becomes flesh, is punished so justice is accomplished. And so, not only does sin no longer threaten our achieving life's chief end and aim, but those who are in Christ, we are guaranteed it. We are guaranteed it. Listen to 31 through 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God is the one who justifies. All the charges have already been brought. There are no more charges to bring. Or if you're going to bring them, there's no one relevant to bring them before. Christ came to take the punishment for that. For I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those united to Christ, the prospect of achieving the end, we haven't quite talked about yet, but the prospect of it is guaranteed is guaranteed. The goal of our lives, the end, the aim is guaranteed. That's one criterion down for a significant life. Achievability. There is hope. There is hope of achieving the end within which our lives are situated. Now we can circle back and ask, because Christ was condemned for us, what exactly is the end game? towards which our lives are oriented, the achievement of which is guaranteed by Christ. And here is where the Easter story blends with the ultimate story. Right here. This question. This is where the Easter story blends with the ultimate story. Read with me verse 9 through 11 of chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh. Those talking about people are united to Christ. But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that is to say there is a remaining sinful element in our being, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And then when you get to the verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if that's true, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that? The resurrection of Christ is the first fruit of our end. Our end. Resurrection. Raised bodies. He returns to it again and, and even more explicitly in that link in 19 and following. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is that? Well, we have to read on. We have to read on a little bit. What does that mean? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself 
the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, adopt, uh, for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. That is the hope. That is the end. The redemption of our bodies. Now let me just pause and make one point. When I talk about the end here, you might say, Tyler, why don't you say something like to glorify God? Yeah, that's ultimately what our lives do. But notice, that's actually what, how God uses our lives. People who never embrace Christ will one way or another still end up glorifying God because of how sovereign God is. So when I'm talking about what about our lives having significance, here's world six. You get to glorify God your whole life, then die and disappear out of existence. It's hard to know how that one has a lot of significance for you. God instrumentally might use it greatly, but we're asking a deep philosophical question and seeking to answer it. Why does your particular life have significance or can it? And the answer to this is the redemption of our bodies is coming. Raised bodies because Christ was raised. That's what he says. He tells us that the creation personified is longing for something. All of creation is longing. There is a future-orientedness to creation. Longing for something, waiting for something, the redemption of our bodies, because it too will be redeemed. And notice this, the redemption of our bodies is inseparably wed to something else. Relationship with God. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Relationship, belonging. And you notice, by the way, the very last verse of the chapter, verse 39, doesn't say nothing nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will ever be able to suck you out of your body. Not what it says. Nothing will ever be able to suck you out of your resurrection body. No, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Both of them come together. They are inseparably wed together. The resurrection of our bodies, the presence of God. The end game, the end goal is not merely a raised body to run around on some heavenly playground, slide down the slides. It is that you get God. You get God. We've got a goal sketched out here. We've got an end, an aim. It's achievable because of Christ. It's guaranteed for everyone who's in Christ. But is it fulfilling? It's an open question. I haven't talked about that. What about that criterion? Is it completing? Is it compelling? The answer is a resounding yes. Those he justifies, he also glorifies. Does being glorious sound good to anybody? Sounds good to me. 
It sounds great to me, as a matter of fact. In speaking of the resurrection itself, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. So you might have thought, oh, I'm going to get a second body. Oh, but my body's kind of a bummer. I've got all these problems with it. My body is losing the fight to gravity and calories. Well, guess what? Paul says, you know what? We don't, we're not going to know exactly what each resurrection body is going to look like. Here's what we know for certain. Though. It will be glorious. It will be glorious. Your lowly body will be like His glorious body. That's just what it says. And I don't know what you're going to end up looking like precisely. But you will still look identifiably like you. You don't just get another body, you get one that's glorious. And in fact, you get one that in every sense completes the restoration project of the image of God. That makes us distinct in humans. We are being renewed in the knowledge, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, Colossians 3.10. He is the second Adam that redeems those cast in the image of the first. Because of sin, the image is tarnished but not lost. In Christ, the image finds its full, uh, fulfillment. But recall again, it's not just about our bodies. Everything will be fulfilled. Everything will be restored. Do you long for a relationship? Do you struggle to feel like you belong? 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Properly understood, sons and daughters of God, children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. That's family language. Justification, courtroom language. Adoption, family language. You receive the spirit of adoption of the sons by who we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Sons and daughters of God, relational wholeness, nothing able to separate us from God. A fulfillment so glorious that Paul can say in verse 18, despite the sufferings and tragedy in this life, it's not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. That's what he says. And there's a lot of suffering and tragedy in this life. And none of it is even worth comparing to what is coming. It doesn't win by a nose. You can't even see it. That's how, that's, how far, that's how far apart they are in the race, so to speak, for glory. Do you hate your sin? Maybe you don't hate your sin, but maybe your sin's wrecking your life and you should hate your sin. The end of Romans 7, Paul's describing his maddening struggle with sin. And he asks a rhetorical question. Verse 24 of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though we struggle with sin now, 
That struggle will ultimately end with the redemption of our bodies. In 2 Corinthians 5, we will be reconciled to God. There it is again. The redemption of our bodies reconciled to God. I was reading Hebrews 11 on Thursday. It's the so-called roll call of faith. It's almost like God knew I was going to be preaching this sermon this Sunday. It's funny how that works out. The author of Hebrews starts by furnishing us with a definition of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he gives a list of people from the Old Testament who lived their lives oriented toward such things. I couldn't come up with a better illustration if I tried. It zooms in on Abraham as a paradigm. In verse 8, the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then it lists a bunch of folks and it points out in Hebrews 11 how all of them died having not received any of it. You're like, whoa, that's a sad way. I thought this was like a good story here. What happened? Until you get to the last two verses, which is where you and I get to join in on the action. It says, and all these, these folks, that is to say, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Be made perfect. They can't have that apart from us. We're going to be made perfect together. They were running after something, seeking something, but didn't achieve it in this life because redemption is a community project. Christ is redeeming a bride. And guess what? In it, this goal, we achieve perfection. It is difficult to imagine an end game more fulfilling, more completing than that. It's almost the definition of it. What about the last criterion? Does it last? Does all of it eventually end like a grand fairy tale? Do we get eternity? Oh yes. Oh yes. Because of the resurrection. Recall from verse 11 that the Spirit who raised Christ to life will give life to our mortal bodies. He will give life to our mortal bodies. Mortal, a word meaning subject to death. Death is the final enemy that will be overcome. The whole reason the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies, is just so it too can attain freedom from its bondage to decay. The creation is pictured as shackled and crippling and, and decaying, and it too wants freedom from that. It doesn't, it doesn't want to go backwards anymore, so to speak. You say, Tyler, maybe it ends some other way that isn't death. It's not the case. There's any doubt about the end ending. All such doubts are, as it turns out, 
put to bed and put to rest at the end of the Scripture. In Revelation chapter 22, we read about the throne of God and the risen Lamb. John writes, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. The tree of life shows back up. It shows back up. From the very beginning, remember? The tree of life shows back up. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The aim, the goal, the end of the Christian life never ends because those who are in Christ have been united with one who holds the keys of death and who has conquered death. He knows the end from the beginning. The resurrection of Christ stands at the center of Christianity. It allows us to give grand slam answers to this schema right here. To the question, how do Christian claims about reality make life significant? Now, maybe you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. We're still really glad you're here. What do you think about this schema? Hmm? How would you plug these things in? What would be your answers to these things? Maybe you say, I don't have answers, and that's because life has no significance. And I appreciate your intellectual honesty if you want to embrace that. But my guess is, if I inspected your life, your life would be lie, meaning it would go contrary to your profession that it lacks significance because you live like things are significant even if you profess not to. If you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you to consider these things. Maybe you're a Christian going through the motions. How does your life need to be reoriented around these things? Maybe you're just mailing it in, surfing the pew. How is it that you need to be captivated by a larger vision? Maybe you've been a believer for a while. You have opportunity to ask yourself, does my life reflect these realities? If this is the shape of reality, does the way I live my life actually reflect that? Does, do my little p purposes and my little g goals that I pursue, do they fall in line with the stream of where all of history and my life is going? Or, if on candid reflection, do, do I realize that there's places where I'm swimming sideways or I'm even swimming upstream? I've lost a sight of the end. I've lost it. I've lost my bearings even though I know how to say the right things.
Regardless is what's true is that we are great sinners. But Christ is a great Savior. And the beautiful thing is, the call is to the same to everyone here this morning. Is to take one step closer to Jesus Christ. For some of you, that may mean repenting and believing for the very first time. For some of you, that may be repenting and believing the gospel for the hundredth time and embracing the grace that Christ has secured on your behalf. Those who repent and believe the gospel and live in light of the end that calls from the future, it calls to our souls. If you will live in light of that, despite the suffering and the tragedy and the disappointments in this life, you will find more unwavering fulfillment and unshakable significance than you ever imagined. In this life, we will have tribulation, but He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for a risen Savior, a Christ who has conquered death, a Christ that helps us understand how something like a human life could have significance in the first place. Oh God, I pray that you'd open eyes, you'd open hearts, that you would cause scales to drop from people's eyes who are perhaps blinded by their ambitions or by their sin. That people would turn to you for the tenth time or for the first time. Embrace the grace provided by our risen Jesus here on Easter Sunday. It's in his name.